Hi, everyone. Welcome to Chris's Courses, where I take you through the lessons and classes that I'm going through at the Westlink Church of Christ. I'm Chris Perry. I'm the Family Life Minister there. And right now we're going through a series called Questions in Genesis. We're looking at the first foundational book of Scripture to see what kind of questions it wants us to ask and how we understand ourselves. We're looking at it first from the perspective of this ancient book to see how it is relevant for today. So last time we were looking at the flood story, the story of Noah, and we were focusing mostly not on all the details of the story, but on God throughout the story, how God is affected by humanity, why God chooses to do what God does, and then how God feels at the end after the flood. And we saw that overall God realizes that just wiping everything out isn't actually going to solve the problem of evil because it's a problem with the heart. Now, there is a little bit left to the story of Noah that we get, didn't get to last time, so I want to pick that up, and then we'll move ahead into our, our main focus for today in Genesis 12. So there's this last little story that comes in Genesis chapter 9, and so I'm going to pick up in verse 18 and read this for us. The sons of Noah went out of the ark, were, who went out were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan! Lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. Okay, so one of many stories, I feel like I say this every time, man, this story is kind of weird. So for one thing, we're seeing here a recurring theme that happens throughout Genesis, that happens throughout Scripture, that God gives people a fresh start, and then we immediately mess it up. So Noah, he gets out of the ark, he plants a vineyard, which I guess he was the first person to figure out how to do this, and makes wine, and gets drunk. Uh, and, you know, after being cooped up on that boat with all those animals for all that time, you can maybe understand it. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, Genesis itself doesn't seem to present Noah's drunkenness as, as sinful. You know, I mean, it's probably foolish, wasn't the right thing to do, but it's really not uh, calling him into question at all, at least not explicitly. The real problem is what Ham does. But what did he do? Because it doesn't seem like a big deal, right? His dad gets drunk, passes out naked, and Ham just seems to notice, right? We would probably say that Noah's at fault here, but that's not how Genesis presents this story. Now, some commentators have wondered, could seeing his nakedness have a different meaning? If you go to the book of Leviticus and you look at the commands there, like in chapter 18 or in chapter 20, commands that have to do with uh, sexuality, uh, the phrase uncovering nakedness there is a euphemism for sex. Uh, so it says, don't uncover the nakedness of you know, your mother or your sister. Right? That's not just seeing them naked, it's implying uh, doing more. And in fact, even in Leviticus 20, seeing the nakedness is also kind of equivalent to uncovering. So, 
Some think that Ham did something to Noah or to Noah's wife because uh, the nakedness of your, your father is a way of referring to your mother. So that's not entirely clear. It's definitely a possibility. It definitely would make uh, Noah's extreme reaction make a little more sense. And, of course, one of the other odd things about this story is that who gets cursed? It's not Ham. It's his son, Canaan. So if there was something else going on here, uh, if some think possibly Canaan was a result of Noah sleeping with his mother, then that would explain the curse. But Genesis doesn't go into all of that. We're left to wonder whether there was more going on to him uncovering the nakedness or not. But whatever it really is, the fault is he's dishonoring his father somehow. Uh, Whereas, you know, his brothers, they carefully come and cover him up. Ham just goes and tells what he saw. Um, so even if he did just see it, that still would be considered considered dishonorable because he's blabbing about it. And so the result is, like I said, this curse that focuses on Ham's son, Canaan. And, you know, it's interesting that this story comes right after the rest of the flood narrative because we mentioned last time, throughout that story, Noah doesn't do doesn't say anything, and all he does is just do exactly what God tells him to do, right? He's not really much of a character in that part of the story, and God is the one that's taking taking the active role. In this story, uh, it still seems like it's part of it, but it's very different because God is silent, whereas Noah is the one doing things and talking about things. So we're kind of left to wonder, what's God's opinion of all this? Does God curse Canaan, or is this something that Noah has the power to do, right? Their understanding of cursing and what that does and how involved God is in it, uh, it's hard for us to understand that in the same way. You know, the point of the story, like I mentioned, first of all, is the way that we mess things up after God's fresh start, but also we're seeing the, the breakdown of relationships, the breakdown of family. It's such a big theme throughout Genesis. We're seeing it here. And it leads into the genealogy, chapter 10, gets into all the the lines of these three sons. And on another level, this is kind of given an explanation for where the bad people come from, right? If the name Canaan is not a coincidence that that is uh, the people that Israel ends up fighting against and displacing from uh, the land of Israel, from the promised land. Uh, And Ham is also associated with Egypt and those areas, whereas Shem is associated with the Semitic people, uh, the people of Israel. And so uh, the you know, kind of scholarly term for this is an etiology. It's, it's explaining why things are the way they are. This explains their worldview, and this is a common thing that you see in Genesis, is, well, the reasons these people are so bad is because they're the product of, of incest, or they're cursed somehow. Uh, that's, that's a way they made sense of the world. And so, you know, now looking, you know, at the bigger picture of chapters 1 to 11, we've seen that it starts with creation is good, but then sin enters, and yet God continues to work to restore goodness. And so we already looked at chapter 11, where God scatters the people at Babel. That's kind of the end of this big section of seeing the way that sin spreads throughout and affects everyone, and humanity continues to just go the wrong way. And so after chapter 11, as we go into chapter 12, we see a significant shift in God's relation to creation, right? First, we had the call of creation as a whole, and then we get the call of Abraham. 
And just a side note, I know that Abraham is first called Abram in the story. I'm probably just going to say Abraham all the time, but you know, I do know that there's a difference, and the difference is significant in the story, but we'll just say Abraham. Now, chapter 11 is kind of a, a bridge to that, aside from the, the Babel story, where it's giving this genealogy and table of nations to show, show that Israel is part of the larger world. It has a context, and, and they are related to these other people. But this is going to be the family that God focuses on. But it's already an unlikely choice. At the end of chapter 11, it mentions Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Sarai. Again, usually just call her Sarah. It mentions that she's barren. She's not able to have children. Uh, And after a genealogy that's all about birth, it's kind of surprising you would get someone mentioned who seems like they're not able to have children. So we're already seeing where God is going to choose to work before he's actually called Abraham we know his situation seems kind of hopeless. Where most people would see an ending, God is going to see this as the start of the story. God sees this as a new beginning. So let's hear God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I'll just read the first three verses here. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, you know, we've all probably had some experience with moving, moving to a new house, moving to a new city. You know, it's never easy. We all like to be comfortable and have things the way that we are. We like to be settled. In fact, that was kind of the problem in the Tower of Babel, if you remember. It's that they weren't scattering and filling the earth like they were supposed to. They were staying in their own comfort zone and trying to build this tower to not be spread around. And yet, uh, God calls Abraham to that, just like sometimes we feel called to go into a place that we don't know, into a place that may seem uncomfortable. But just imagine that you're Abraham here. He's lived in the land of Haran for a long time. You know, it says he's 75 years old. I mentioned before that ages in the Old Testament can sometimes be more symbolic than the, the literal number. But, you know, he's, he's getting on in years. And, you know, he's just kind of doing his thing, doing his job. He's taking care of his flocks. He seems to have done pretty well in life. And then suddenly this God, Yahweh, appears and tells you to go. Right? We don't know who or what Abraham worshipped before, um, if anyone was worshipping the Lord at this point, uh, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, it seems like he didn't, right? This is an unknown God just appearing to him. And it's been, you know, if we're just looking at what's in Genesis, it's been generations since God uh, visibly acted like he did in the flood or in the Tower of Babel. So if this, if this is you, if you're Abraham, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond do you really even have a choice? You know, if a God comes to you and says, go here, uh, can you refuse to go? Well, it seems, you know, these stories, uh, there is always a choice. God is calling people, and we have to respond to that call. Uh, And it's out of nowhere. It's surprising sometimes, but Abraham decides to go. You know, there's a great promise here, but with great promise comes great cost. Uh, to paraphrase Spider-Man, right? Uh, as one writer puts it, to stay in safety is to remain barren. To leave is in risk is to have hope. 
And so there's a lot to this promise here. For one thing, the Lord says, I'll make your name great, which is kind of interesting because that's exactly what the people building the tower wanted in chapter 11. So we're seeing that greatness is something that can only really come from God. We can't force that on ourselves. It's a gift. And then he talks, God says that all will be blessed in you or through you. This now is God's plan to bless the entire world. Instead of attempting to try and just bless all of humanity, bless everyone at the same time, God is going to bless one family, and then through that family, God will bless the world. So this is kind of an, an alternative community is what God is forming here. It's, it's a narrow focus, but with a broad purpose. So to use some theological terms, election is about vocation, not salvation. God does not come to Abraham and say, I'm going to save you out of this wicked fallen world and take you to be with me in heaven. Uh, election, when God chooses people, it's about giving them a job, a vocation, right? So election is about vocation, not salvation. So when God calls Abraham here, when he chooses him and, and his eventual family, he's giving them something to do, and it's oriented around this purpose of blessing the entire world. You know, I think an analogy today would be like a focus group, where you give special attention to one subgroup, like in a school or in a jail or in a specific department of an office, before you implement it in the whole group, right? Why would you do that? Uh, how could that go well? How could that go wrong? Right? One of the reasons is to see, okay, how does this work out? What are, what are some things we need to fine-tune? You know, let's find out what the bugs are before we implement it with, with a bunch of people. But it could go wrong if, if people start to feel resentment, if they're not part of that focus group. Uh, the people that are in the group might start to feel that they're special, that they're better than everyone else, even if the group was chosen at random, which kind of seems like is, is the case here in Genesis. And that is basically the story of what happens with Israel. They do think that they're somehow completely different or that they're better than everyone else. And they lose sight of the fact that they're meant to be a light to the nations, as the prophets will call them back to later. And so we can see through the story of Scripture how this promise is eventually fulfilled. Uh, You see Abraham himself blesses people around him. You see the way that his descendants will bless people in Egypt, like with Joseph. Uh, You see the ways that they continue to grow. You have the kingdom of David and then Solomon, who are, you know, they continue to grow and have an effect on the world around them. But then Jesus' ministry especially, it tends to bless outsiders, people that seem like they wouldn't be included. Jesus continually steps beyond the boundaries uh, of who's acceptable. And then as you go into the days of the early church, everyone is blessed through this, right? God doesn't ignore Israel. It's still using this story. It's still part of the same promise, but it's no longer limited. And so everyone can now be part of, of God's people. So how does Abraham respond to this? Pick up in verse 4. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. And when they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved 
on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. So the word's not used here, but there are several ways in which we can think of the idea of faith in this passage. For one thing, we see that faith is a journey. It's not just uh, a one-time thing that happens, right, to make a faith commitment and then you're done. It's you're always moving. Uh, you have to be moving. You have to be growing. Otherwise, your faith is kind of dead. Uh, faith challenges our desire for security, to settle, to stay with what we know. Right? He has to travel hundreds of miles here, and they're just on foot with all their animals, all their people, all their stuff. And God even says, it's to a land I will show. I mean, they didn't have maps and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's just kind of, all right, we'll start walking, and I'll tell you when you get there. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I, I often feel like I'm happy to go somewhere if I know exactly where I'm going. But Abraham doesn't really get that here. He just has to go. How else do we see faith, right? It's, uh, Paul will pick up on this in, uh, as he's talking about Abraham's faith in, in his letters where faith is, you know, trusting a promise without visible evidence, right? Abraham doesn't know anything about this God, about Yahweh. And there were lots of gods that people believed in in this time. So why, why is this one worthy of my trust? Why should I put my faith in him? Well, there's no real evidence for why, but, but he does it. And God rewards that. Sometimes faith means we don't know exactly how it's going to go, but it's believing that God is trustworthy so it's about a relationship more than anything else, right? Abraham trusts in God, and God considers that faith, as Habakkuk says. Now, it says here at the end that he begins to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, Yahweh now truly is Abraham's God. Um, again, that's, that's a big deal. There was a lot of gods on the marketplace back in this time. And so Abraham is committing fully to this God, just as Yahweh is committing to him. But... Even as he's made this commitment, he's gone and taken all of his family, all his possessions. Uh, it seems like he's a person of faith. Challenges start to come up. So the first challenge happens with Egypt. So picking up in verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt with, to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, uh, the officials of Pharaoh saw her, and they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. So the question kind of going through this part of the story is, will God keep the promise, and will Abraham remain faithful to it? So far, Abraham's been completely faithful, but here we have this first challenge of a famine, you know, it's kind of odd. This, does this reflect badly on God and the promise God's made? He goes all the way over to this land, and suddenly there's no food there. A famine hits right after he shows up. Uh, no, there's no comment on what Abraham should have done. You know, should he have stayed there and trusted that God would still provide for him? He just does what he has to do, and I, and I think that's kind of seen as a, a neutral thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But 
Abraham's response once he gets there regarding his wife, uh, that actually does seem to show a lack of faith. And you see that in the way that he talks about it and the way that it's kind of self-centered, even as he's talking to her and what she's going to have to do, right? I want this to go well with me, right? You got to protect my life in verse 13. I mean, what do you really think happened with Sarah and Pharaoh? When it says that Pharaoh took her as a wife, I mean, that implies everything that goes along with a marriage, right? It implies sex. Uh, So this is not just, just go hang out with Pharaoh for a little bit and this will all blow over, right? Something deeper has gone wrong in this. So how does God respond? We see this picking up in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they sent him on his way with his wife and all that he had. So does this trouble you? Uh, I mean, it seems kind of unfair that God would punish Egyptians for Abraham's lack of faith, right? He's the one that lied and made a mistake, and yet these people suffer for it. For one thing, I think we're seeing here the, the power of the promise. Abraham is clearly blessed. You know, he comes out richer than he was before. Uh, So God is blessing him, but Abraham in turn can then either be a blessing or a curse to others. There's this great responsibility that's placed on him. And when he doesn't live up to that responsibility, this is the result. This is the result of his failure. God keeps his promise to Abraham, even when Abraham is unfaithful. Um, I, I guess that really is good news. Um, Now, hopefully it doesn't affect other people in a negative way. Good news for us shouldn't be bad news for others. But the emphasis here is that God is not going to back out the second that Abraham makes a mistake. Uh, Now, a couple other things to notice in this. We often refer to this period as, as about the patriarchs, right? The great fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet God cares about the matriarchs as well, right? Sarah is kind of just used as a commodity, and God is going to take care of her. He doesn't ignore what happens to her. It's not just because she's Abraham's wife. Um, she's important, and that's going to be a repeated theme. God, If God didn't want to use Sarah, all this could have been a lot easier, but God is committed to both of them in this. And there's also a, a foreshadowing of the Exodus story here. Right? You have Israelites, so to speak, going down to Egypt, and he's even called an alien or an immigrant there in verse 10, and they have an encounter with Pharaoh, and things, you know, Pharaoh takes some uh, of, of the people that don't belong to him, and God responds with plagues, and so the Israelites are sent out with more goods from, from the Egyptians. So we're seeing that this story is, uh, the exodus looms large through all of scripture, and so it's kind of pointing towards that here. So Abraham fails the first time, uh, this is going to come up again. Actually, the exact same thing happens. Um, but there continue to be challenges. So then we get into chapter 13. Here, it's basically the idea that this, this promised land isn't big enough for the two of us. Now, we're not going to read through all of this here. But just to summarize, we're seeing, again, that Abraham is very clearly blessed. But then there becomes this tension between Abraham and all of his possessions and his nephew Lot and all of his possessions. You know, it also acknowledges there are other people in this land, right? They didn't just walk into this great, you know, 
bountiful, fruitful place that nobody else was in. No, there's other people here, and they have to figure out how to live with them. Uh, now, Lot, he, you know, why, why is there so much focus on Abraham's nephew? Well, it's kind of the closest thing that he has to an heir at this point. And so that's why, you know, their relationship is kind of key. If God is going to bless this family, well, who's that family going to be, right? That's another big tension that will be addressed uh, in the coming chapters. So what could have Abraham done here in this story, right? There's, there's not enough land for all of them. They're, they're farmers or they're people who are taking care of their flocks or arguing with each other. Um, I mean, Abraham's the elder, right? So he has the right to choose. Nobody would look badly on him if he chose what he wanted if he took the good land and gave his old little nephew whatever there was left over. But instead, he lets Lot choose, and Lot seems to take the, the better land. Now, this is going to come back to bite him because he ends up going to the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and it's not going to go well there. But I think we could see this for Abraham as a, a sign of his faith in the promise. He's going to trust that God will provide. I don't have to claim and, and you know, grab the best land. Uh, there's no fear of scarcity here, which is so often our mindset, that, that I've got to get as much as I can, otherwise there's not going to be enough. Uh, the, the approach of faith says, no, there is going to be enough. God is going to take care of me. I don't need to claim every single thing that I can to know that I'm going to be all right. And so because he does this, God both acknowledges and reaffirms the promise. So we see this in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So God is here saying, you know, we haven't seen it as explicitly before, but this idea that your descendants are going to be beyond what you can count. Uh, it's hard to see that when he's old and has no children. All he has is this nephew that he's already got a little bit of difficulty with. But God promises this. And so if Abraham is going to keep going, it means he's going to have to trust. This promise trust that God is going to make things right. God is going to make him the people that he says he's going to make him. And so we've already seen that Abraham is very up and down. He'll listen to God, he'll act in faith, and then he'll find these moments where he gives him to fear, and he loses trust in God, and he goes his own way, he chooses to do what he thinks is going to be best, and it ends up hurting other people because of the influence that he has. And so we all have to make the same choices. All of us in some way are blessed by God, maybe not in the specific and, and uh, powerful way that Abraham is, but we all have blessings, and we all have to continue to put our faith in the God who we trust will bless us. Our blessings may not be wealth and riches and a large family and a lot of land, but if we trust those promises, then we are more likely to be the people that God calls us to be. When we give in to fear, when we feel this need to protect ourselves, this need to, to just grab everything that we can, we're usually turning away from God, and that's usually not going to work out too well for us. We're going to lose what we're trying to cling to instead of letting it go and trusting that God is going to meet our needs. So that's what we, the faith that we see in Abraham. Hopefully we can live out that faith too. Thanks for joining us today. 
Next time, we'll continue on with more of Abraham's story. So we'll see you then.